You're listening to SAS Nordic, the sassiest podcast in the Nordics. Hi, I'm Daniel. And I'm Thomas. And we are experienced SaaS professionals that are curious about how other successful SaaS companies go to market, scale, build winning teams and great products. Join us on our journey as we speak to Nordic SaaS leaders trying to get hold of their secret sauce. And today's guest is Hugo Wernhoff, the CEO and co-founder of Cognity. For me, I see this vision as, as being one that we could hopefully reach in 20 or 25 years meaning I, I currently plan to spend the rest of my career, the rest of my life at work on this. Welcome to a new episode of the SAS Nordic podcast. And we have had some really exciting weeks. We have launched 30 new network groups, four CEOs and four executives for Nordic SaaS companies. And uh, it's been great fun. What do you say, Daniel? I mean, it's, it's really been amazing. I think to, to a certain extent overwhelming, actually, that so many people are willing to bring their talent to sit with us one hour a month and to share their their do's their don'ts their experience with each other i think it's really fascinating to see and that's really what we're all about that's what the community is about helping each other and supporting each other so really amazing first sessions here and i'm, I'm really looking forward to the upcoming sessions as well definitely and something else that is upcoming is Celsius 22. Why don't you tell uh, the audience a little bit about what they can expect from the event? Definitely, definitely. So uh, as you all know, we have Celsius planned for April 20th and 21st in Malmö, Sweden. And that's going to be a, a learning session and experience session that you've never seen before. We're going to put the community on stage. There's going to be a bunch of great speakers that are going to share the do's and don'ts, the good, the bad, and the ugly about how to scale a Nordic B2B SaaS company. We're gonna to have topics, everything from uh, how to grow your sales, how to move international, PLG, there's about scaling culture, so many fun and great topics that I think there's gonna be something for all of you really. Yeah, and we have a big theater, we have a great hall for exhibitors and for Mingle, and in the evening we have a dinner and a party, so it's gonna be two full days of getting to know each other and also get a lot of good knowledge while we are doing it. All right. Uh, besides that, we have an interesting episode in front of us uh, and uh, we're going to talk to someone who has uh, a vision for his company and wants to do that for the long term. So let's go on with it. Today, we are very happy to have Hugo Wernhoff, the co-founder and CEO at Cognity, here as a guest at the SAS Nordic podcast. So a big welcome to you, Hugo. Thank you very much. It's a pleasure to be here. Excellent. Really great to have you here. So why don't you tell us a little bit, who are you? Yeah, well, um, my name is, uh, is Hugo, uh, as uh, you probably know from the podcast title, if you're listening. I originally grew up on a farm about two hours south of Stockholm. I work with tech and pedagogy my entire career. I'm a big lover of nature and the countryside, and I am currently the CEO and co-founder of Cognity. And what is Cognity all about? So Cognity provides a complete teaching and learning tool for schools. The value we provide is that we increase student engagement, we save teachers time, and we improve learning outcomes. So ultimately, we significantly improve and accelerate the core function of a school, which is to make students learn content and skills. Okay. Yeah, we sell this to schools on a subscription basis. So we're a B2B SaaS company in that respect. Uh, they got on board, get on board with Cognity 
Uh, when we come into schools, we typically replace printed textbooks as well as a number of other more fragmented edtech products they have. Uh, we currently have um, more than 1,000 schools in over 100 countries as customers. Wow. And uh, we've helped uh, a bit more than a quarter of a million students to better learning so far. Cool. And how does all of this start? Yeah, well, how does anything start? A, lo <laughs> a lot of uh, luck and coincidence. Um, um, but yeah, so I studied at uh, Stockholm and I met my co-founder Nicholas there. We originally started a different company, which was also in education, but not in tech. And uh, this first company, Lanterna, was a course provider for high school students across the world. So we set up course centers in, um, in and around Europe, the Middle East, and in the United States. And uh, yeah, basically sold holiday courses for, for high school students. And by doing that, we fell in love with working with learning and felt that this was our calling in life. This is what we wanted to spend our, our time on our, and our careers on. And we started looking for just more, more um, uh, scalable ways of building the impact that we did with that company. And then, of course, our eyes turned to, to tech. So um, we might be a bit odd in that we knew from the get-go what impact we wanted to create, but we didn't have a business idea for it. I think it's more common for companies to start with a business idea. And after some time, they uh, apply a vision to it for um, investor pitches or, or uh, on the website. But we did the opposite. We started with the impact we wanted to create and no business idea. And then we just experimented and, and eventually that took us to Cognitive. I love that because uh, to a certain extent, I think both Thomas and I can relate to that. Like we were doing this SAS Nordic thing. Mostly we started because we like hanging out with each other. We had really no idea <laughs> where the heck we, we would take this. <laughs> but anyway, I mean, it's interesting to hear and we're going to dive deeper into that, uh, the, the vision and the mission around Cognity. But before, we want some hard numbers. So take it away, Daniel. Oh, so I get the honor to do the numbers. All right. So Hugo, uh, to put things in perspective, how big is your ARR today? So we're, we're a bit north of uh, 100 million sex. So that translates to about $12 million of ARR. And how quickly do you grow year over year? We're at about 40, 50%. We've been a bit up and down and we'll see how uh, 2021 ends, but, but about, uh, about 40%. Right, right. And you mentioned you guys had over a thousand schools using your technology. So, and how many regions or, or countries do you guys cover today? I think the count is 115. Okay. Okay. Yeah. So our first customer was uh, in Kigali in Rwanda of all places. But today we have a very spread geographical footprint. Our biggest revenue geography is the United States. And uh, China is our second biggest geography. Uh, India is big as well. Middle East, uh, Central Europe, Switzerland. But it's really spread out over all continents. So we have plenty of schools in Africa, South America, Southeast Asia as well. That's fantastic. So you mentioned China here, and uh, from experience, it can be quite hard, you know, coming with a SaaS um, business or a SaaS solution into China. So have you encountered any specific challenges there? We've had a couple of challenges. So for one, we haven't been able to find a video hosting solution that works. And uh, in our product, we have a lot of uh, a lot of pedagogic content of various types for schools and students, uh, but we can't really provide video to China. Um, they also released an edict a couple of months ago 
basically illegalizing any foreign educational companies or any companies providing education for um, students in China, which was very ambiguous and unclear. So we are, we together with a lot of other education companies are a bit in limbo right now. Um, but, uh, but we seem to be able to ride out that storm as well. But it's, uh, it's, it's one of the tougher markets to operate in. But so far, it, it's, uh, it has worked uh, pretty well. But good that you operate in 114 other countries then. <laughs> exactly, exactly. And, and how do you guys fund this growth? Have you, are you self-funded or did you bring in some external capital? We were reasonably bootstrapped uh, during the early days and, and financed um, this startup of Cognity with cash flows from our first business. Mm-hmm. But then along the road, we've taken, on, uh, we've taken some cash on board. Um, I'd say it probably adds up to around $30 million. Uh, and uh, of those 30, 20 came in just this past summer. So a, a big chunk of that came in recently. And, and what was that earmarked for? It's earmarked for some, to some extent, uh, strategic product investments to just d- deepen the impact we have for each individual student that gets on board with uh, Cognity to make sure that the learning impact we have is uh, uh, goes from significant to, to radical over time. And um, a big part of it was also earmarked for expansion within the uh, US. As I mentioned, it's our biggest revenue ge- geography today, yeah. but uh, we see a lot of potential there for the a state school system, which is definitely underserved, and, and we think we can bring something uh, something amazing to that market. Really exciting! And how much of the company do you own today? About fifty percent of the company is owned by uh, me, my co-founder, and other key staff and early employees, and the rest is owned by external investors. Solid chunk. Yes. So the main topic today will be how it is to be a vision-driven SaaS company because I, I know, as you said, this started with the impact that you wanted to do in the world and, and then you sort of found a business idea around it. So what does it mean to be a vision-driven company? I, I guess all companies have a starting point of some sort, whether it is uh, a financial objective, um, the feeling of adventure, uh, self-realization, but our starting point was really a desire to, to have a significant or radical impact for the world's global school population. So there's about 1.6 billion students in the world. And it was very clear to us through our previous experiences that uh, they are underserved by uh, technology. Technology hasn't really had an impact so far in, in education and in learning outcomes and this is such, such a big waste of human potential, of societal potential, and it creates a lot of unfair life stories. So that's our starting point. And that means that everything else that we do is derived from that starting point. Meaning that whenever, whenever we plan, whenever we put in our strategies, whenever we fundraise, we have to take this into consideration and see how can we optimize the entire business to make sure that we reach this impact over time. Yeah, we're definitely going to go into those things a little bit more in detail. But but first, uh, how does this start? Do you suddenly wake up in the morning and, and you find that this is my mission in life? Or, or <laughs> was there a, a turning point for you? Yeah, so I, 
I'd say I've, I've always been uh, interested in, in education. I grew up in a family of teachers, both my my mom and my grandmother were teachers, and they're two of my, my big role models in life. Um, but then it was really the experience of our first business uh, called Lanterna, where we set up these courses, uh, these physical courses that we had high school students from all over come into, and meeting those students and uh, starting to care a lot about them as individuals and seeing the value that we could deliver of uh, improved learning and of also creating a belief uh, in them, in their own abilities, and perhaps a belief in their ability to get further and to do things that they didn't think they would be able to. That was probably the switch when, when we felt that uh, this is so much more worthwhile than going into um, investment banking or, or consulting or whatever was the hot thing uh, at, at the time. So I'd say that was probably when it, when it really, something switched on and, and we, we figured out that this is, this is uh, our, our calling. Okay. Right. And, and can you talk a little bit concretely what it means for you as a CEO running a, a mission and vision driven company, you know, and how that affects strategy and all kinds of elements of running the business? Like, is there a big difference from not being mission or vision driven, so to say? Yeah, I, I guess, again, it depends on what the alternative is. But if you are gearing yourself up to do an exit, whether it is in three years or, or seven years, it would probably be quite different. Um, for me, I see this vision as, as being one that we could hopefully reach in 20 or 25 years, meaning uh, I'll spend the, I, I currently plan to spend the rest of my, my uh, career, the rest of my uh, life at work on this. That means that the fundamental view of the business is long-term. So I have to optimize for the long-term. Really long-term. Yeah, and it can sometimes almost be a trap as well because you also have to optimize for the short-term to be able to optimize for the, for the long-term. But um, of course, when, when we, set, we need to set aggressive short-term targets, but make sure that those targets are set in a direction uh, of a path that will over time take us to, um, towards our ambition. Yeah. And I think that that's really exciting and, and actually ins inspiring to hear you say that uh, in, in the world where we find ourselves in, where there's like, you know, uh, aggressive targets on quick growth and a lot of money that are that is spurring this growth. I also wanted to ask you a little bit, how do you go about this telling the story and attracting the right investors? Because some of them maybe don't have that 20, 25 year old plan like you have. It's a great question. And I do think that we've probably, it, it might have affected the, uh, the valuations that we've been able to raise on because we have dequalified a number of investors that we don't think is right for us. So we haven't, uh, even though we've brought on reasonably large sums of, of money, we don't have any VC investors um, because we have felt that that is not right for us. We've also avoided funds. So any investors investing out of funds where they have a clear um, exit timeline where they need to divest in five or six years. Right. Uh, instead, we've always been looking for evergreen structures. So people who can invest for the long term. And that narrows the list of possible investors down to individuals, family offices, and some investment companies. So that's, that's the bulk of the external investors. 
that we have right now. And that means that we can run slightly less competitive processes. But at the same time, we don't want a pressure on Cognitive to set ourselves up for uh, an exit in, in five years and to optimize for that because we think that, that will, you know, that's just not the kind of journey that we want to make with this uh, company. The company is a vehicle to achieve something beyond financial returns. Of course, financial returns will come as a part of this. And, and I'm convinced that the best way to create big impact is to have a strong commercial machinery at the core of the company. But, um, but we care about other things beyond financial returns as well. And I guess uh, building your team with the right people must be vital for this. So how does that affect how you work with recruitment, for instance? I'd say it has a very positive effect. A lot of people want to work with something they care a lot about. And a lot of people care a lot about education. So, so overall, it gives us a big advantage in what I see as being the single most important success factor in any company, which is who do we have on board? What kind of talent can we attract? What kind of people um, work at, at Cognitive? What experiences, what attitudes um, can we gather into the team that is to uh, embark on, on uh, this journey and create this journey together? Right. It is a big advantage. Um, we have a lot of people reaching out Uh, to us to want to work with us and not do not primarily due to our, our traction uh, which is good or or the fact that we are as international as we are but more because of uh, the impact that we have and that we want to create and um that also has knock-on effects for when people later join cognitive uh, in that um, there's a lot of missionaries at Cognitive, a lot of people who care so deeply about what they do and what they bring to the table um, in terms of either deepening the, the impact for students or widening the reach of impact, um, sometimes almost at unhealthy levels. But overall, I'd say this is a massive uh, uh, positive for us. Hmm. And how does this affect the culture within Cognitive? What, what, what characterizes the, the, the culture you have? Yeah, so the two things I spend a lot of time on is um, is partly making sure that we are heading towards our vision over time. We've we've already started discussing that, and the other thing is culture. We work very actively with with uh, culture, um, with defining what the culture is. And the way I see culture is that it's a set of behavioral norms. It's not um, some. It's not a couple of statements. It's really how do we can we codify how we expect uh, each other to um, behave in uh, in group situations, in individual work, in terms of uh, being uh, centric on customer needs, in terms of how we go about uh, resolving disagreements, in terms of what we raise when, how, and basically raising everything whenever we feel it's right and, and having uh, radical transparency. Um, so it it's re it's really comes down to how we expect each other to behave. And I'm happy to talk about this for hours, both how we <laughs> define it and, and how we implement it. But but I'd say it, it definitely also has some, uh, in, in, it's intrinsically impacted by the uh, vision we have as well. Yeah, and I, I think there's a particular power in, I've had the pleasure once before, that's actually where I bumped into Thomas to work for a company where, yes, we were selling something into uh, predominantly e-commerce providers, is an e-commerce technology platform. 
but the mission and vision was so firm that everybody felt that it's more than just selling a tech platform to e-commerce vendors. We're actually here to revolutionize an industry. It was not as as gracious as as your mission, <laughs> uh, but but really, I, I think it's hard to compete. It's hard to compete, but that notion and the fact that everybody felt that you know we're on a mission together, all these hundred people in this room, to do something great, and that got people to to work. I think probably the hardest and the most efficient I've ever seen in any organization. It was that underlying mission and vision that everybody had bought into, not just selling another tech solution to an e-commerce provider. So I think it's key. Yeah, and that what you described there is one of the best feelings in the world. Still what I enjoy the most, the feeling of us as a team coming together and doing something that is extremely difficult. It's, uh, it's not impossible, but it's near impossible. And it's worthwhile. Right. <laughs> so since it's not completely impossible and worthwhile, let's give it a shot. And and uh, bringing and having a lot of skilled and and uh, and and uh, impressive people hmm. in one place together to work on that. And and of course, I realize this is nothing that's unique to cognitive. This exists at, at a lot of companies. Um, but yeah, that's what that's uh, what I love the most about working with cognitive. Are you part of a distributed team? Do you struggle your day through scheduled video meetings and chats? Teamico makes virtual work spontaneous. Talk walkie-talkie style, co-work side-by-side with or without video, and bring those coffee chats back. Join our users across 117 countries for free today on teamico.com. That is T-E-E-M-Y-C-O. Teamico, your office online. A thing that I'm curious about, I mean, there must have been situations during the years that you have had to do tough decisions or, or so. So I don't know if you have any stories that you could share Sure. Uh, around that. Sure. Uh, a, a lot of those situations, as all uh, startup journeys, it's been a roller coaster. And at times it feels like everything's going up. At times it feels like everything is going down. And when everything is going down, that's when you have to... Uh, quite often bring out a toolkit of, uh, of uh, decisions and actions that aren't uh, the most pleasant ones. And you have to be uh, um, quite drastic as well sometimes. Um, but it ranges from having significantly overhired on, uh, on sales team members before, uh, when uh, we went during six months from six t- uh, sales reps to 24, I believe, distributor across the entire world, and we couldn't get any productivity or any sales results out of that uh, sales organization. So it ended up with us having to let go of a majority of people we had just hired, which feels awful um, because it was really our mistake. It wasn't uh, their fault. Uh, we didn't have the organization to support them or to make sure that they were productive. Yeah. Um, uh, and... Um, and of course, a lot of HR situations, those are always the trickiest ones. When do you, so, so given that we, we believe that what we do is so important, that has to take precedence over uh, other considerations at times. Right. So we are, as one example, very active with performance management. We are very clear about that in order to succeed with, with uh, this task that we've set out on, we need people uh, on board um, that are, um, exceptionally 
talented, uh, driven, come in with diverse perspectives and are ready to, to put a lot of passion into cognitive. That doesn't mean ours, but it does mean passion. Right. Um, and sometimes this fails. And a lot, of that, a lot of time when it fails, it's due to us not having done a recruitment process in a good enough way, but still it leads to us having to have uh, difficult conversations with people about leaving. Um, and I, I think we might be more active with doing that, given that we feel we, we need to, we just need to have an amazing team to be able to uh, complete this near impossible task. And uh, I'd say all those situations are tricky. And uh, uh, the, uh, the part about running a company that sucks the most. <laughs> Uh, it's, it's, I'm laughing a little bit because it, it is painful to, to grow and all of these things you're touching upon, it's all about growing and scaling. And I actually had a question for you on that topic. Um, it, it seems like obviously you guys are, are doing really well, you're growing really fast, but also having this long-term vision of 20, 25 years down the road here. Is there ever a balance where you have to find about maybe I, I can't grow as fast as I want? because I'm going to burn too much cash then. And long-term, that's not going to get me to where I want. Yeah, there is. So when we see opportunities, we want to uh, double down on them. And a lot of time that, that means that we consider taking on external capital to be able to, to double down properly and ramp up uh, teams, whether it is in product or sales or both. Um, but that also means dilution and since we want to remain a vision-driven company, we are very careful about not giving up control of cognitive destiny. Uh, and we have to plan long-term about those uh, fundraisers that we have on the horizon. Right. So say that we may need another two to three major rounds before we are in the clear, given how fast we want to grow. Right. So two to three rounds, we're at about 50% now ownership. Uh, what's the dilution for each of those? Maybe 10 to 20 percent. Um, and then, like, w what would our ownership that we have in the founding team and, and key staff, what would that amount to in terms of being able to steer the destiny of, uh, of the business? Um, can we make sure that we still focus on the long term or do we hand over control to someone who is more concerned about doing an exit in, in five years? And what would that mean for the business? So we have to be really careful about that. So in one sense, we want to aggressively take in cash. Um, but in another sense, we want to make sure that we retain control for the long term to be able to still in 10 years time, uh, make sure that the course is towards, um, towards this, this uh, desired impact. So stupid question here, just simple math. So if you go under 50%, I mean, then someone else could decide the faith of the company or doesn't it work like that it's a great question so i had the perception when we started out that it did work like that but it, it doesn't necessarily work like that okay a lot of the um, decision power in a company is um, described in the shareholders agreement so in the shareholders agreement you regulate who gets to name how many um, participants on the board of directors for instance okay um it also dictates um, who can veto what decision. So for instance, uh, me and my co-founder can veto certain, uh, certain decisions. Um, and this is irrespective of, of what, we, what we own. 
So I'd, I'd say that our shareholders agreement is, is geared uh, towards ensuring that we can continue along the path, the, the desired path. And, and it gives me and my um, co-founder uh, the amount of control that we are comfortable with. It's nothing crazy, but, um, but it's, it's just about thinking those things through. And that's part of the ne negotiation when you raise uh, funds. Mm. So again, if you're willing to hand over a lot of control, you can get higher valuations. Um, we had now in this last funding round as one example, we had one investor who came in with a very attractive valuation, but they also wanted the right to, to uh, drag all other shareholders into an exit. If they found an acquirer of Cognity, they wanted to be able to force all other shareholders to accept it. Red flag. <laughs> that sounds more like your traditional investor. <laughs> exactly. So then it's, but those situations are so easy for us because we can just say that this is off the table and we're not willing to even discuss this. It's not going to happen. Yeah. And then we can just not waste their time or our time on that conversation. Yeah. But I think it's really interesting what you say uh, and good that there are those opportunities in the agreements and everything. But did you know that from the beginning or did you get any help of, uh, you know, making sure that you could maintain more control uh, over time? We received help from um, a lot of different people. Um, we did have some early angel investors. Okay. And uh, they have helped us out. We've had... Uh, Johan Blomqvist, who uh, is a uh, is a very active SaaS investor, he has he's the, the chairman of our board, and he was also the in the first round of investors even before we even figured our business model out. Um, so back in I believe 2014, and we launched in 2015. Uh, he has helped us out a lot with these questions, and, and uh, I can recommend him him to anyone who wants to raise capital. So here's a shout out to him. Okay. Great. No, but I, I think it's very valuable information for probably a lot of, of companies that have a similar, you know, vision like, like you guys have. So uh, really interesting. So what is in the future for Cognity um, now? What happens the next year? Yeah, we raised $20 million this past summer. The purpose, as we discussed, was um, a big part of the purpose was to build out our offering for uh, the U.S. high school market. We have about 230 U.S. high schools as customers today, and we believe that we can um, we can become uh, the leading learning resource provider, the the leading edtech uh, tool for U.S. Uh, schools. Okay, because today you have the international curriculum, right? And now you're going into U.S. specific curriculums as well. Exactly. So we have we have to be curriculum specific. Uh, with our product localization and so far uh, the high schools that we have in the u.s they all adhere to this international uh, internationally standardized curriculum called the international baccalaureate okay but now uh, we've had requests from day one really in the u.s ever since we've sold our more or less first school to also build an offering for the u.s uh, state curriculum market so what all uh, american uh, students um uh, go through and that's what we're doing with this money so that means a lot of uh, adaptation both on the product side on the content side on the go-to-market side um, and the, the idea is then to build up a presence there and, and hopefully to be able to get into the over time hundreds of millions of, of dollars of ARR in the US 
uh, school market and use those funds to then be able to address more challenging uh, markets, both pedagogically, product-wise and economically. And, and then we're talking about middle-income countries, low-income countries, looking at South America, uh, Sub-Saharan Africa. Could we go in to, say, uh, Ethiopia or, or Nigeria and, and create the product that we can distribute really fast at a super low price that uh, elevate uh, learning in a radical way. That's what I dream about down the line, but that's probably five to 10 years away before, before we're there, but that's where we want to get to. It's exciting. Everybody wants to, to crack the US and it sounds like you guys are on good terms there to, to just do that now. I think so. I'm, I'm curious, I have, to, I have to ask, like, uh, how does one sell this, your solution? Like, do you sell to the states, to the municipalities, to the deans, to like, it sounds like there could be a lot of people and hurdles to cross to get into that curriculum. Yeah, uh, it varies with the geography. In um, Asia, there's a lot of uh, centralized school decisions. So individual schools, there's a headmaster or a principal who who sees cognitive, wants it, and then uh, adopts it, and it's a top-down decision. Um, in Europe and South America, it's quite often bottom-up, where uh, teachers decide, and uh, it's a teacher finds it, and then they uh, decide together. In the U.S., it's a special situation where schools are organized in school districts, right? and school districts can be anywhere between five and 500 schools. Um, and uh, they can have they can roll funds of, of hundreds of millions of dollars of really large organizations. Okay. Um, and um, they are also financed with local property taxes to a large extent. Okay. Meaning that some districts are very wealthy. If you are located in Newport Beach and you have a, a school district there, or if you are uh, located in in uh, South Chicago, it's just two very different realities. Uh, in terms of funding, resources, tech readiness. Right. But we essentially go to these districts. Uh, we uh, pilot Cognitive for a couple of their schools. We show them the results and the impact that it has for their students, both in learning outcomes, but also uh, just surveying teachers and, and, and students. We share all data transparently with the decision makers at district level, and then they make a decision on, on whether they want it or not. Super cool. All right. So what else are you looking for in, in your journey ahead here? Is there anything you need, anything you're looking for? We're always looking for exceptional talent. We're hiring uh, a lot right now across all functions. Of course, engineers. So if anyone here listening is an engineer, <laughs> please uh, reach out. Um, we... Uh, we love engineers, but uh, but all, all exceptional talent is welcome of any type. Cool, a lot of uh, opportunities there, and and um, you could also mark your application SAS Nordic, so you know it's from the podcast. Here. So that's great. Exactly. I'll give you five percent. <laughs> that will get you the interview right away. Yeah, perfect. <laughs> uh, but who would you like to see on the show? Yeah, I was going to say my good friend Erik Fjellborg at Quinix, who I think is really sharp, but I. I just understood before this, before recording this, that he's already coming on your show. So I'll just tell everyone listening to this one to also listen to the episode with Eric. I'm sure it will be a great episode with uh, lots of insights. He's really done something exceptional and, and uh, uh, yeah, he's a super sharp uh, person. 
Yeah, and I know you went to school with him and also with uh, Charlotte at Timico that we had as a guest in a previous episode. So it seems like a really a good uh, class you, you went to. Let's put it this way. That school district was really good. <laughs> exactly. <laughs> right. Yeah, no, but it's uh, for sure that uh, some of my motivation to start the, the first company back then was due to knowing... Um, Eric at uh, Quinix and uh, Carl, who, who was some, uh, started Trustly, and, and um, the Klarna founders were just the year above us, and my co-founder is very good friends with them. Um, so of course you you get inspired, um, and you want to you want to try it out yourself. Yeah, and thank you for inspiring us and inspiring others. I think this is. Uh, you know, one of the great things of building uh, the Nordic SaaS community that, uh, you know, we learn so much from each other and we uh, get encouraged to to dare to, to take step ourselves and, uh, you know, put our effort into doing something great. So thank you so much, Hugo, for being on the show. It was a pleasure having you. Yeah, thank you, Thomas and Daniel, for creating this community and this uh, infrastructure for all this uh, information exchange uh, to take place. I, I think you're doing something great here. Oh, that's right. Really nice. Appreciate it. Best of success now on your journey. Thank you so much. Bye-bye. So Daniel, what are your main takeaways for this episode? I was really impressed by by Hugo and we've had the pleasure to chit-chat with him a little bit. I, I really like the, their long-term thinking and how they're building for the future and they're not allowing anything really to come in their way there. There's no money in the world that can sway them or they're not going to be sidetracked. And I think that really defines how we build the company. I think that was uh, in the best way possible. I mean, uh, slightly different to what we're used to. Yeah. Like building for, for the future. Yeah. What about you, Thomas? Well, um, first, I, th I think it's a good idea to read up on the shareholders agreement. <laughs> and uh, maybe we should do it as well, Daniel, so I can veto your stupid ideas. <laughs> <laughs> I thought all my ideas were great. Yeah, almost all of them. Almost all of them. No, but but I think that as well. I mean, it's, it's kind of rare for someone to see that uh, you can do this for 20 and 25 years and exactly what you're, you're into a little bit, that also decides a lot who you jump in bed with, what kind of money you take and why. So um, yeah, a good lesson for everyone, I think, that wants to do something similar. Um, so uh, yeah, great, great talk. Great talk indeed. So I think that's it for, for this episode. I want to encourage you. If you haven't read up on Celsius 2022, head over to the website. The URL is Celsius2022.com and you can read all about it and you can also get your tickets there. And I mean, bring your team, uh, take the chance to go away uh, for a few days to beautiful Malmö, uh, maybe have an internal meeting and then go to the conference or, or just, you know, go uh, a bunch of friends uh, there because I think it will be something really special. Indeed it will. I promise it will be. And make sure you bring your dancing shoes. <laughs> Great. So thanks for today. See you in two weeks. Bye.